Hello and welcome to another joint episode of the Lib Dem podcast and the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast. My name is John Potter. I'm a councillor here in Preston in Lancashire and I am the host of the Lib Dem podcast. Joining me uh, for this very special episode is, of course, the host of the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast, uh, President Mark Pike. Hello, Mark. Good morning. Good morning, John. Lovely to join you once again. And we've, we've, we've brought an extra person, just in case I mess up, which is probably likely to happen. Uh, we have Tom Morris, who was our target candidate in Cheadle at the general election, and is also a councillor in Stockport. Morning, Tom. Morning. How are you doing both? Nice we to see you well. as well, Tom. Yes. Now, we have a lots of things to discuss mm. with our party president, because, uh, you know, there's been a lot happening. Uh, and I think the logical first place to start is obviously the leadership election. Mm. So... I mean, from your point of view, Mark, the, the not, not talking about the result in any way, but actually how did you think the leadership election went from an organisational point of view? Um, I think everyone is glad that it's over. It felt like, the, there was, obviously there was controversy as we've spoken before about when it was run, but then once we kicked it off, I think everyone's feedback is pretty much going to be, it felt like it took a long time. Um, and I think there's a general lesson for us there that the reason it took as long as it did from, OK, we are now running it through to my three sentence speech announcing the winner um, is that our rules are very prescriptive in the details and they set down lots of timescales. And so on. and I think in a world where, as we've discovered, it's possible to do an awful lot more online than it used to be. Some of those old assumptions are no longer apply. Um, I think one thing that did turn out pretty well was the new style of online hustings both doing them online overall in as much as you can compare video views with physical attendance in a room but overall it looks like more people watched hustings than went to them before and actually a lot of people viewed more than one hustings so that bit I think worked really well what also I think worked quite well was the format it's interesting that the regionally based hustings some of them, I think, worked really well. You know, there's clearly a logic in having a Scottish hustings and a Welsh hustings. But quite a lot of members seem to have commented that the, the, the large number of regional hustings within England, it felt like it was the same questions pretty much being asked to all of them. And, you know, and, and maybe we should have had more hustings, you know, looking at particular policy themes and so on. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the full feedback is. But my impression is that the things that we changed the most went best. And the things where we were most traditionally what we did were probably the <laughs> things that were, the you know, the least successful. I, I don't know Tom, what both you and Tom felt of how it, how it went. Well, Tom chaired the North West hustings and the Liberal Reform hustings. So actually, mm. you had a, a foot in both camps. Yeah. Actually, you had a more of a kind of a policy-driven one and a kind of a regional uh, one, Tom. So how did you think the, the hustings went? I, I think Mark's spot on there. I think the, the case for regional hustings, when you have that kind of physical hustings kind of setting, that's where it's needed because it's a geographical location where people can get to. But actually, um, what I found was the, the Northwest Hustings, although it was wonderfully chaired, I've got to say, <laughs> the, um, the, um, the questions were very similar um, to the other regional hustings. The one I found the most interesting was the Liberal Reform one, because there was just a bit of nuance around kind of the economic policy. There was a really good discussion on planning mm. and housing and those kind of those things that are really important to the Liberal Reform team. So I actually thought those kind of issue based or kind of like group within the Liberal Democrat based 
uh, uh, hustings worked a lot better than the regional ones. And actually what I think worked really nicely about not only the liberal reform hustings, but others like the social liberal forum as well, you know, those where there was a bit of a particular almost ideological bent you mm. know, is that you knew the candidates both wanted to play to the audience but also that there was a whole bigger audience out there that might have different views. And I think that balancing act is a really important balancing act. Mm-hmm. You know, not just our leader, but all politicians have to have to pull off. And so I thought the way that you could see with both Ed and Layla, I thought at various times, they were sort of torn between giving the liberal reform friendly answer, but also <laughs> thinking they're also social liberal forum members who I'm also <laughs> wanting to vote for me. And, and I, I think that worked really well. As you say, I, I wonder if what would have worked better is if we'd not had a Northwest Hustings per se, but a Hustings maybe on education, and then said, right, and now we've got a 15 minute slot for questions specifically about mm. the Northwest that might have focused people on those. Yeah, because there obviously are some, you know, Northern Rail would be a good example, mm. I guess, of an issue that should come up in Hustings but is easy to get a bit lost otherwise you know if we had a 15 minute slot where people just focused on on those sorts of issues that might maybe i don't know maybe that would work better in future and do we think there were too many i mean i think there were over 40 in the end and also i wanted to ask you mark about the timings of the hustings as well because for me the 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 campaign lost a lot of energy once ballot papers were out Mm. and i completely understand that obviously you have to give time for people to fill it out and return particularly those who are doing it by post but it certainly i mean i think it was what two weeks before the end Mm. and had a lot of hustings after that and it did feel a little bit after the lord mayor show um but there's there's no real way we could get around that is there no i I mean the basic organizational dilemma is twofold one is if you want all the hustings before the ballot papers go out that pushes ballot papers going out back, you know, because you've got to have some time to get in a whole burst of hustings. It also therefore means the ballot paper period itself just can become very dull. And that leads to the second problem, which is we do have members overseas and some of them are not online. So we have, well, our assumption is, and I think it's the right one, but obviously, you know, it's an assumption I guess some people might want to challenge, but I think it's the right assumption is we have to allow enough time for overseas post to both go out and come back and that you know that is not a trivial amount of time so I think the minimum amount of time the polls can be open for is is never going to be as short as in a sense instinctively we would like and, and I think what wasn't helped Tom just before mm. I bring you in is the fact we did have a bit of a phony war before mm. the actual contest kicked kicked off I mean everyone knew Ed was going to stand everyone knew Layla was going to stand and so it felt like months before we even the actual contest started which probably led to a little bit of this has been going on forever because we were all preparing for it um but Tom um what, what I mean as well as chairing the hustings what did you make of the actual kind of the organization I I thought it seemed to go quite seamlessly I I mean I did have one of my members receive two ballots that was uh but actually Generally, I thought it was pretty seamless. I didn't hear of too many issues. Did you, Tom, have any issues that you want to pass on to Mark? No, no, not at all. I thought it was really, really well managed. And um, I think the there, there was a point where the ballots started arriving and people didn't know and then they appeared in junk boxes. But that's just, that's yeah. the stuff you can't really, you can't really account for that. Um, I thought it was really seamless and the team did a superb like job in just managing that. The thing that I'd be really interested in, Mark, is just going, following on from the, the previous uh, discussion we just had about the, the length of the campaign. Is there any kind of statistics that show when people voted? What, 
did people vote within 48 hours or did yes. people hold on to it? You, know? you, you basically get two spikes, as I think we did again with this election, which is immediately after the ballots go out and just before the deadline. Yeah. And so, and actually this partly comes back to your point earlier, John, is that certainly in a close contest, the election is still very much up for grabs three or four days after the ballots have gone out, because although you've had a big spike of people voting, there's still a whole chunk of people out there who haven't yet voted, many of whom will. Um, and so in a lot of our contests, actually, that second wave of voting is the one that's determined the result. Um, I think, I mean, what we don't know is if we had a much shorter period and therefore it's you get your ballot paper and you have to fill it out by the end of tomorrow. It's like, you know, in an extreme, <laughs> example. I guess, you know, you, you would get that huge burst. But there is a bit of it takes time for people to realise, oh, I should have had my ballot and I've not. And maybe I should look in junk or maybe I should post on social media complaining I've not had my ballot. And then Greg or someone at HQ can respond saying, have you looked in junk? You know, I, I think you know, as, as well as the overseas voters and, you know, the, the, the postal issues there, there is some value in having voting for a, for a bit of a period. What I, what I genuinely don't know, and it'd be really interesting to hear feedback from any listeners on this, is it seemed like this time there are a lot more people saying that they'd not had their ballot and then somebody popped up, maybe one of the three of us, to reply to say, have you looked in junk? This is who it's from. And then they found it. That seemed to be a much bigger problem. That might be that social media has just made it easier for people to flag a problem and for the likes of us to all be helpful to colleagues. Or it might be that genuinely there was a bigger issue with that. I think the stats from HQ suggest that it was probably more greater awareness but rather that, but I, I, I think it's the sort of thing we should never be complacent about because if we've got that problem with a ballot email of all, and imagine what's happening to all of our local party newsletter emails, for example, where you've not got anything like that focused on, did you get it? Here's how you can find it, et cetera. And I suppose, Mark, you've, you've, you've raised HQ. I mean, it would be really, I'd love to hear from you. How did the, the staff cope with it? What were the, were there any additional logistics issues? Or, I mean, you, obviously you praised them in your, in your short speech um, before you announced the winner. But was actually, were those challenges overcome? Were they greater? Were they lesser? Yeah. How, did it, how was the contest for staff? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the key members of staff running the leadership election, it was from all but one of them, it was their first leadership election, first internal election that they run. And so full credit to them for getting, you know, doing a really good job. Um, I think there was obviously a fair amount of controversy about um, a couple of issues that went to the returning officer for returning officer ruling. Um, I think there's definitely... You know some things we need to think about about um, how, what is what is the extent to which you know the election rules should cover behaviour versus to what extent should we say the election rules only cover this bit and everything else is for other people to argue over, deal with, etc. So we will have our usual post-election review of the process. Um, I expect that it will be. Um, at a relatively gentle pace because, you know, fingers crossed, we're not going to have to have a leadership election. Too. And also it's not like we've got other in big internal elections for party president <clears throat> or federal committees coming around. So I guess it will be at a relatively gentle pace. But the upshot of that would be that if we are have got any rules revisions, they would come to conference at some point, I would have thought next year. 
Um, so, you know, there's definitely a chance for members to sort of input their views on that. Um, I, I think the other thing I would, you know, I, I would say is, you know, just, you know, not only the thanks to the staff, thank you to all the volunteers, you know, people like Tom and, and many other people who chaired hustings, or even if, you know, you were just one of those people who occasionally popped up a message on social media to remind members you should have had your ballot and here's what to do if you've not, you know, everyone, you know, huge numbers of people in different ways contributed towards the, the outcome and of course the other thing is you know regardless of who anyone wanted to win a clear result is always helpful that it means that you know the gremlins there were like you know the yeah. member that you mentioned earlier john there's you know there isn't any doubt that that gremlin didn't therefore result you know impact the election result i may have put yeah. too many negatives in that sentence but you know what i mean no no that was fine <laughs> the quadruple <laughs> negative <laughs> I was going to look this up, Mark, but I thought there's no way you're not going to know this, uh -oh. Uh, this uh -oh. statistic. I'm reaching uh, for my mouse to look something up now. <laughs> uh, it's about turnout. It's, yeah. uh, and there were some people saying, um, you know, the turnout was poorer than what mm. we expected. Now, how, um, I mean, how on a, on a historical basis of Lib Dem leaderships, how was the turnout? Just so people it was up on It was up on 2015 and down on 2017. Um, so I think the turnout I would describe as fine. I wouldn't say it was brilliant, nor would I say, oh, woe is us, you know, disaster awaits. Um, and I don't think we should be complacent about that. Um, I think, that, I mean, there's a range of reasons why people will have not voted. Um, and one of them, which I think was more prevalent this time, anecdotally, but seems to be more prevalent, was actually a fair number of people who thought, I just, I quite like both. There's not a killer reason for one rather than the other. So I think there was a bit of... I just can't decide about it um, or I can't decide and it's an important choice and I've not got time to sit down and watch another hustings for an hour. So I'll therefore, there's almost something honourable about not voting in that sense. If you feel, okay, I'll leave it to others. Um, but nonetheless, we shouldn't be complacent that there is clearly, you know, a big task to keep members engaged in the year after you've had a very disappointing general election result like like we did. And also, of course, it's a year where most of the things that we normally use to get members involved, we're not able to do, you know, coronavirus and the sort of the inability to get out on the doorsteps, the inability to hold local party events where people physically get, to, you know, there's a whole, there's a big engagement challenge that we all need to play our part in in the coming months. Tom, what did you find in Cheadle about uh, turnout? Did you, were people enthused? I did hear from uh, one member in, in Lancashire who just said, again, because it had been going on for so long, just went, I'm fed up with it and I, and I ended up just uh, abstaining on it but what was the feeling in Cheadle? Um, just from the kind of the members I spoke to I think the I'd be really interested to find out if there was a, a way of finding out the turnout within a specific local party but I think um, our members made their mind up quite early on um, we were in the fortunate place where both candidates had come to us prior to the actual election starting um and 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 I already kind of built a, a kind of a, a um a rapport with the members here so it was mostly what i heard was people voted within the first three days and then went i don't care about it now and then i want to go and knock on doors or deliver leaflets so that's basically how that, how that happened and i suppose it's important mm. to realize that i think i think the labor leadership keir starmer's victory i think only had 62 percent mm. uh turnout so yeah. I mean, I actually don't know what the uh, the Boris Johnson leadership election kind of returns were for the um, for the Conservative. The Tory one was higher, but if I remember correctly, the Tories still do a postal ballot, mm. um, and I think that is a little bit different. That if you post, 
So if something lands on your doormat, that is more intrusive in your life than if email lands in your inbox. And so I think, you know, it's not quite comparing like with like. I think you're right. There is a general, it's just a feature of humanity about turnout in internal elections in organisations, not just political parties. It is very common for people to be very happily a member of an organisation to be handing over money to it and to choose not to take part in an internal ballot. It's just why people choose to participate is a much more subtle thing, I guess. Than It always reminds me, although this isn't an, an electoral example, of this really curious professor there was when I was doing my PhD in the history department there. There was this chap who came to every departmental meeting and never said anything. Mm. <laughs> and you sort of think, you know, what what's yeah and 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 it but it's that sense of being part of something and yet not participating can be a very you know it's a normal thing for lots of humans to do that that applies with member organizations and internal ballots as well and i'm I'm sure mark won't mind me giving it a plug but mark has done several episodes on the never mind the bar charts podcast with professor tim bale who talks Mm. about membership they're very good to go back and listen to talking about the the structures and what kind of people make up political parties. So there you go, Mark, free plug. uh... (laughs) Tim's book, Tim's book with colleagues on, on the uh, foot soldiers, which is, which is based on uh, some quite detailed study, not only a political party membership, but I think the thing that makes the book really good is they also looked at strong supporters of parties. And so what's the difference between a strong supporter of the Lib Dems and a strong supporter who also chooses to join? And that, that one of the things that Tim finds, which I think, again, we should always remember, is that there's something about political party membership that disproportionately appeals to people like us, mm-hmm. i.e. white men. Yeah. Um, and and, and they, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been very keen on the racial supporter scheme, for example, is that there is something inherent about party membership across parties. It's not, you know, this isn't just about the Lib Dems, that just appeals disproportionately to um, one slice of the of, of the population and if we want to really represent the whole country and all you know really bring to life our, our beliefs in inequality and so on we need to alter that a bit so the next point that comes that we should have to touch on regarding the leadership um, contest was there has been and I'm, we're all three of us aware we're a minority of people who were disappointed with the mm. result and have either threatened to leave or have left now, Mark, what would be your, not pitch to them, but what would you say to them if you think, well, I was really hoping for a different result? I mean, disappointment is very understandable after an election. And I think the disappointment is often sort of almost psychologically all the sharper when it's an internal contest. Yeah. Because, you know, if you lose an election, a public election, you can sort of direct that anger at, um, the other party, or perhaps unwisely but understandably, you know that the those those stupid voters, you know, you can but you can <laughs> you can express the anger, you can you can direct that outwards. In an internal election, you can only direct it inwards. So I I think it is often a feature of internal elections that they they feel particularly hurtful if you don't get the result that you like. What I would say is that if you look at previous, even really sharply contested internal elections the sort of wounds do heal quite quickly um and it's notable how well ed and layla actually get on with each other which is a you know a really good sort of bit of leadership from both of them from from the top 
um, in that respect. And, you know, I think, um, you know, if people's initial reaction is, oh my goodness, I just, you know, I just want out, then I can understand that. What I will, what I hope is that people sort of are willing to give us a, you know, a second look, you know, even if, you know, you think, okay, I just don't want anything to do with that lot for a while. Just, you know, I hope you'll give us a second look in a few months time when you're seeing how things are going, which is why I think, you know, although there have been one or two of the more extreme comments that have maybe made me bridle a little bit in what people have sometimes said, I think, you know, the way to respond is just with with politeness and with empathy, um, even if in the middle of a, you know, the expression of frustration, people use have sometimes used some words that go a little bit far. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind, I mean, I, I had this experience with one person and I'll try to keep this reasonably anonymous to not sort of in case they, they would rather I didn't pick on them but who 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 who's who has crossed swords with me on Twitter I've crossed swords with them on Twitter a few times previously and the Twitter algorithm just happened to throw up that mm. you know on my timeline that they were leaving the party and I thought well it'd be churlish just to not to ignore it and so I yeah. sent you know a a polite reply back along similar lines to what I've just said and actually I was quite pleasantly surprised how kind their response back in turn was that I think once you can get beyond the initial very understandable disappointment it's worth saying yeah okay look let's just let's just you know we can wish each other the best and hopefully our paths will converge again at some point in the future and this come back I mean any of us who canvas you know that's the kind of how you deal with 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 voters as well in the terms exactly. of if you if you respond with negativity or prickliness or anything like that you tend to drive them further away mm. and you know and for us that survived coalition on councils mm. and things like that know that we lost members mm. we lost voters at the time and actually you can either stick it to them mm. or or just wish them well and eventually yeah. they'll hopefully come back because yeah. if you make it and this is where the Corbynistas are getting it completely wrong they're saying you know as soon as Keir Starmer got elected, I saw some of them saying, right, it's time to end this party. And it, it, you're just not helping the situation. Yeah. But, I mean, Tom, you, you obviously, you, but for a couple of thousand votes, you would be in Westminster right now. You, you know, for those who don't know, Tom is the, was the number one target candidate in the whole of the, the Northwest. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you deal with that kind of disappointment? And what have you said to pay, maybe people who have been, because, I mean, I, was, I voted Layla. I, you know, but but I made a point of when I said I was supporting Layla, saying that whoever wins, I thought would be a good leader. Mm. I just, in my personal opinion, I thought Layla might do that little bit extra. Mm. Um, so how do you, how have you dealt with it, Tom? So I, I think it's, I think it's in terms of myself. I think it's just kind of getting people to understand that actually this was just a very minor battle. The kind of the big thing is take is holding this government to account and you know and winning seats and winning elections that way. I think the you know there was obviously and Mark spot on there was you know there was there's raw disappointment and anyone who's lost an election will understand that kind of feeling of disappointment that feeling of anger um, and sometimes it's up to the winning sides to be the first to open their palm and kind of bring people in and listen and that kind of stuff. The the other thing that I'd probably want to say is that um, that there was so little difference between the two candidates. Mm. It seems. So that's where I kind of bristle and I have to stop myself kind of responding on Twitter and things like that, because it, it doesn't matter to, to me, like they were both brilliant candidates. They would, they both would have made brilliant leaders. Um, so they're both, we, we win either way as a party. And the only way I can kind of think about it is 
if you support a football team and your manager goes with one striker and not the other, you don't look at the team sheet and go, right, I'm not supporting this team anymore. Like, you, you just, you don't do that. So what you, I think it's, we need to allow those people to kind of, you know, take maybe a bit of time to, you know, kind of get their heads around it, have a, have a think, but then also we need the other side to kind of be more proactive in listening and, and being, showing a bit more empathy and bringing those people in because the important thing is holding the government to, the, to account and getting rid of this conservative government mm. and winning council seats because when the Lib Dems win, our residents win and that's what we need to start focusing on. Yep, absolutely, well said. And we'll move on a little bit now mm. from the contest to what's happened since. And I think mm. from, from my point of view, Mark, I, I'm really interested. I like I said, I, I realise I'm a bit of a Lib Dem nose, as we might, might expect. <laughs> but what, what has happened between yourself, the chief exec, and the leader mm. since the contest? What has, what has been this process now? Has, I, mean, I mean, I imagine Ed is feeling a lot better because being mm. an interim leader is, is, is always mm. had like one hand behind his back. Mm. So what has changed since the actual contest? Mm. Well, I think what is... Um, I guess relatively straightforward in the sen- in that sense is that not only you know Ed as leader, but Rhiannon is his chief of staff. You know she's she's um, been staying on. Is that it, in that sense it's it's been relatively easy to pick up pick up things because it's sort of a group of people who were working together, albeit as you rightly say in slightly different roles earlier in the year. I think one of the you know one of the really clear things from the Thornhill review is about you know me and ed and mike we all need to be clear about what our job is and also what our job isn't and maybe all the more so the latter if you look at some of the things that the thornhill review picked up on and and i think it's quite helpful in that respect in that the sorts of things that if you look at what ed said in his manifesto and what i said in my manifesto we're talking about quite different tasks you know I, i i am not the public front man you know, that is not the sort of role that I, you know, excel in, um, you know, or, 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 or seek. Um, and, you know, it's why I stood for party president rather than, you know, standing to try and get selected instead of Tom, say, as a PPC, <laughs> you know. It, um, so so I'm, I'm quite optimistic on that basis that, you know, I, I think we've got between the three of us, people who've got quite, you know, different interests, skills, perspectives, and that's quite useful. Obviously, we need to be mindful of the fact that we're, not the most diverse trio and therefore it's really important in all that we're doing that we don't end up slipping into habits of it being a very undiverse group because also you know we're you know it's not just the obvious issues you know in terms of for example we're all men but also you look at you know we're all from London as well you know that we need to make sure and that's why it's great that for example we have Lisa you know councillor up in the northwest as chair of the elections committee now that adds a really helpful different perspective um, and and we need to always be working at that full diversity um, to make sure that our decisions and discussions are better. Tom is there anything you want to bring up on 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 this? I think that I <clears throat> I I think the that the thing about the three roles is and kind of uh, what you said there is the most important thing is what your roles are not and that is really interesting because I think and as a as a part, former parliamentary candidate and also someone who worked for the party I think that kind of blurring between the lines of who is in charge of what um, has has always been there and I think that um, that means that you know I, I mean from my own experience I've seen 
you know, both a chief exec, party president and a party leader kind of stray into territory or kind of, of organisational kind of um, issues where that's caused problems, not just kind of for an external communications point of view, but for an internal comms point of view where kind of campaign staff or headquarters staff kind of get confused about what's going on. So I think that's really important is that kind of structure that we can start getting in place where if there is a particular issue or a particular problem, that falls on the plate of Mark, for instance, or if there's another problem, it goes to the leader's office. I think that's really important going forward. Absolutely. And, and I think part of that is all three of us need to be good at our jobs, because I think one of the things that you know, can drag people into doing things that are, you know, in a sense, stepping on someone else's toes is if, is if they don't have confidence in what someone else is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, that might be justified and it might be the least worst outcome is to, you know, that person is messing up, therefore I'm going to intervene, etc. Um, but fundamentally, we all need to be good at our jobs and have that mutual trust. Um, and, it, and in that sense, I was, um, you know, I was sort of um, sort of gently pleased that during the leadership election, you know, both Layla and Ed were quite rightly saying the party needs to change. Now, there's a lot that we need to get right, a lot that went wrong in 2019 that we need to fix. But they also were not getting drawn into really micro detail about that. You know, there was a sense of, yes, they are going to be very supportive because, you know, Layla as well is, you know, continues to be an important senior figure in the party that they're very supportive of the need for internal change, but also happy to let the other people and the other bits of the party that have responsibility for that to sort of get on with it. And as long as we collectively get on with it, then, you know, then, then, then they're happy not to be, you know, not to be meddling in all of that detail. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. With any kind of successful organization, you need a degree of trust between those kind of three, like Mm. those, those key pillars. Mm. Now I've worked in organizations before where the boardroom has been run basically with people competing against each other and it, and that then filters through and it, it just causes chaos on the ground. But actually what you need there is, you know, both of you, all, all three of you working together, but trusting each other that, you know, that person is getting on with their job and their team is going to be delivering of what's needed. Yeah. And that's, yeah. yeah. And that sounds like the absolute perfect way forward. Yeah. Um, and that's also partly why, you know, at the board, we decided to sort of, press ahead with you know the, the time scale in the Thornhill review for for looking at governance changes and so on and how we can improve how the parties run rather than waiting for the new leader to be elected because of course it's really important that the new leader you know that Ed now is happy to uh to sort of fit in in that sense with with the way the parties run rather than him deciding to go off and do his own thing but also you know one of the lessons from the Thornhill review fundamentally is don't put everything on the leader you know, and actually how the parties run, big elements of that are, are for the rest of us to sort out and get on with and, you know, it's our responsibility. And and I mentioned that because I know it's a question that came up a few times over the summer is, well, why are we doing any of this before the leader gets elected? And the answer is, well, because not everything is the leader's job. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's worth, could we, might be worth just spending just two minutes here, just mm. briefly say, okay, you've got the, th- the three roles we've mentioned, yeah. the leader, yourself as president and the chief executive. What are, in, in a, as simple as we can, what are their roles within the party? And what are, and I get, we don't want to kind of completely um, prejudice the, the, the changes that yeah. might come along, but generally, how do you see those three roles and what, how um, they interact? That's a, yeah, let's see how good an answer I can give. I think the, <laughs> the, the, our leader is the sort of the public face of the party. And 
is the one who's primarily responsible for you know driving forward the vision and the political strategy um i think the my role as president is um to be the voice of the members and to oversee because you know i chair the board and so on to sort of lead and, and oversee the scrutiny operation you know the scrutiny side of the party's operation because you know the board is not there to do the job of party staff it's there to oversee and so on um, and then the chief executive mike's role is to head up the paid staff operation of the party actually i should say is to head up the the paid staff isn't quite right the right phrase because volunteers play a really crucial role mm. in some of the things and actually we probably you know we need to make more and better use of volunteers but mike's mike's job is to help is, is to head up the professional administration you know the uh, of, of the party that keeps everything ticking absolutely yeah um so let's go on to to ed now and mm. so he has launched his listening exercise mm. now uh, maybe this is me being a little bit cynical and put me in my place because I'm ha always happy to <laughs> that to happen. Is that so? This is a listen exercise designed for the public rather than say Lib Dem members mm. because what what kind well, of he's just done forty seven hustings or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And, and and the Thornhill <laughs> review was that was the chance for Lib Dems to say okay what what has gone wrong mm. in twenty nineteen and beforehand. Yeah, exactly. So this is more about Lib Dems not being caught in little silos and being in an echo chamber and actually understanding a little more of what's happening yeah. in the real world. Is that how you see it, Mark? Yeah, and, and in a way I see it as the equivalent of the, you know, you probably do something like an annual resident survey in, you know, in, in, in your wards, you know, both in, in Preston you now and in your patch as well, Tom. And that, you know, we we don't think, oh my goodness, this is awful. We're putting out a resident survey, asking people their views rather than telling them what they should think. You know, we recognise that actually hearing from people is really that is really important and that's because there are a lot of different choices in terms of what is the issue we should be talking about the most and what's the issue we should be talking about the second most often yeah there are there are you know those are in a way pragmatic choices as to you know should we be spending most more time talking about uh, education or should we be more time talking about welfare reform and you know improving the well you know the quality of the of, of the safety net there and um, well both are really important both we want to do both we can do a bit about you know if we've got power at say local government level both we want to be in power at Downing Street which should we which is the one that should maybe get mentioned more often than the other that in the end is a sort of a pragmatic tactical question where hearing what voters are saying most matters to them really the other thing is I think where we disagree with voters where we want to persuade voters to change their mind the best way to do that is to start with understanding where they're coming from mm. um, and i think this applies particularly to the european issue that simply labeling people who disagree with us as all being bigots or racists or whatever that's not how we're going to win people over that's not how we're going to build that majority support for winning out on the European issue in, in the long term, we actually need to understand why people are disagreeing with us. Because some of them are very liberal, some of them are pretty pro-European as well, we need to understand that. And therefore we can work out how best to win them over. I, yeah. I, just to follow on that, I, I think it's actually, it's a very kind of liberal democrat thing that actually, I think too often from our campaigns 
you know, over the last, I'd say, five years, we've almost come with like solutions for people's problems and said, like, this is how we do it, you know, in a very kind of like uh, metropolitan elite way, like move aside, we'll sort this out for you. But actually, the kind of the ethos of, a liberal Dem- of the Liberal Democrats is empowering people to kind of to tackle those problems themselves and those communities to kind of face those problems and sort themselves out but we have to give them the power and the only way we do that is actually listening to people about what the issues are yeah and then we can help them sort of sort those they tackle those issues and so i think this kind of this listening exercise is a really good way and it's a really good start to do this and and you're absolutely right it did again whether it was ed or layla both candidates made it very clear that that was the first process of their leadership that they were going to yeah. do. And, you know, I, 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 the, I mean, the European issue, I think, illustrates this most starkly, but it's not the only one by any means. Um, and I think it's, this is an area where actually environmental campaigners generally have got very smart at the understanding that to win on environmental issues, you need to persuade people who are not immediately won over by just very stridently and passionately shouting how important the issue is that actually winning people over to win the political debate to actually help protect our environment requires understanding where people are at and therefore how to how to persuade them to change their mind so you know one of the things that often puts people off is a sense of well you know being green is somehow about being more expensive and if you can understand that that's and then that that gives an opening okay there are ways we can tackle that whether it's with the details of our policies or how we frame our arguments it's there's an opening there to win people over that simply shouting at them that it's awful the world is going down in flames doesn't doesn't get you very far yeah that's and i'm I'm going to be again a little bit cynical here um so the listening exercise that's going on i mean Lib Dems, as we know, for, uh, the people we like to talk to are generally other Lib Dems. Mm. So is, is this an actual, how does the party intend to go about this? Are we going to use polling companies? Because there are, there are lots of companies that do a lot of work on issues and what matters. So how, do we, how does what we're doing now as a party fit in with all the sorts of organisations that do this kind of professionally, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think there will be lots of elements to this overall, and obviously they're being very rapidly collated at the moment. But as you rightly say, John, hearing the views of non-Lib Dem members is really important, as actually is hearing the views of, for example, small L liberals who didn't vote Lib Dem last year. Now, there's, there's an awful lot of them, and they, they should be really promising territory for us to win over, and we need to understand why... Uh, you know why it was and and in some cases it's relatively straightforward you know in some cases it's because say they live in a seat that they saw as being a labor tory marginal and so they felt you know that they couldn't vote for us and the answer to that therefore might be an organizational thing which is we need to build up our strength win some more council seats in that seat and therefore next time round you know have more chance of of grabbing so in other cases it may be about Learn, learning what the best ways of persuading people in other cases it may be help give us some insights as to well, what are we actually going to prioritize as the issues we want to talk about the most <clears throat> so for example um you know the nhs is massively important you know lib dems are really strongly committed to it <clears throat> we've varied a lot over elections how much we've spoken about the nhs 
because you've got these two countervailing arguments. One is it's massively important as an issue, we, we therefore talk about it. And the other is the more you talk about it, the more people end up voting Labour because it's associated so closely. It's not, a, there's no great policy or principle difference between the two. It's about listening to voters, figuring out what's going to be most effective for the next election that's coming up and then you know, doing that because in the end, if we can't win over voters, we don't get the power that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And all of those wonderful policy principles just end up being, well, things that we can say that we feel nice about, but they've not, we don't get the opportunity to make the real difference to people's lives. And that's, that's in a way, that's the principled approach. It's to focus on what matters, ain't the nice words, it's the action that can make a difference to people's lives. How do we maximise the amount of action we can take? And I, I, you've just kind of made me think, we were having a, a chat, me and my ward mm. councillors do our weekly ward walks, you know, because we can't knock mm. on doors yet. So we do our ward walks, we get out in the ward and things like that. And we were just chatting mm. about, and we had a new member join us, which is fantastic to, to join us. Excellent. And we're talking about why, why doesn't, why aren't the Lib Dems, say, massive on, we'll use your example of the NHS, for mm. example. And I was talking, again, my marketing strategy is, we, well, there's two problems with it, really, in the sense that, if there's a huge story about the NHS, the press will go for a, a government line and a Labour line and we might not get on. So the conundrum we have as a third party or fourth party or, or, or any party that isn't the main two mm. is that do you go for niche issues where you are one of the lead voices on it or do mm. you go for ma major issues where your voice might not get heard exactly. above the cacophony? And that's a really difficult mm. um, marketing strategy that the Lib Dems have got to handle. Yeah, and in a way, the ideal policies are ones that matter to voters and where we have a view that is different from, in England, Labour and the Tories, obviously, for example, in Scotland, you need to add in SNP to that and so on. Um, yeah, likewise in Wales. Uh, but there are not always that many issues that fall into that category. Um because the matters to voters bit is a really important element of that. Now, some, we can definitely do work to persuade voters that something matters in a way that they didn't realise that it did. Um, but we also need to be canny about our ability to do that as a relatively small party. You know, we, we definitely can push open some doors that are a bit closed, but we've not got that you know, with 11 MPs, the amount of national media coverage that comes with that and so on, we've not got that battering ram power for the fully locked and bolted, you know, yeah. door to charge charge that down. So we need, you know, but, but the, the way in, in part I think about it is if you think about the general election manifesto and all the different policies that we have in there, there's then a choice about which ones are we going to talk about when. That That's the choice that should be really driven by pragmatism. Um, and it doesn't in any way undermine the principal choice about what policies we put in the manifesto. You need, you need both. And I suppose, Tom, on a, on a, on a localised level, you'll do what I suppose lots of other Lib Dems around the country do. You try and get a national issue and then focus it locally and get that attention there. And that's what we do week in and week out, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely spot on. And that, that whole, the, the whole process is, if, if you, you can have the best manifesto in the world, but if you don't win, then it's just a piece of paper with a load of words on it. And, and that's the whole process of this is we've got to find a way to start winning elections. And you do that by campaigning and talking about the issues that the people who you want to buy into your product through votes, yeah, uh, resonate with it. And, um, 
and as much as I would love to go into every election and be a liberal purist and talk about the issues that I really care about, the rules of the rules of the game, sorry to sound so, so, so cynical, don't allow for that to happen. Mm. And so, you know, if we go onto that field in, into electoral politics, then we've got to play by those rules yeah. and start speaking to voters about the things that they care about. Um, and then if we can then persuade them to vote for us, then we get, you know, MPs elected, we get councillors elected, we start running councils yeah. and implementing the policies yeah. that we really care about. That's, that's the, that's the way to, yeah. that's the only way to do this. But I think it's also the principled approach because in a democracy, voters get to choose yeah. what matters most. And I mean, that's the thing that's different between a, one of the things that's different between a democracy and a dictatorship in a dictatorship, the dictator tells people what matters in a democracy, people get to choose. I, there, there is, I've no doubt, a West Wing quote. Um, in fact, I think there is a West Wing quote uh, along those lines, because I think Ed and I put it in one of our, one of our chapters, 101 Ways to Win an Election. But, but what, that is one of the fundamental features of a democracy is voters get to choose what ma matters to them when they make up their mind how to vote. And, you know, in that sense, respecting that, I think, is a really, it's part of what should make people hum, who are seeking public support humble in a democracy, because the voters get that choice. And that is, that is wonderful that the voters get that choice. And we need to be humble enough to respect that that's where the power lies. That's what we need to respect. And therefore, that's what we need to understand. And of course, that understanding might then lead to, okay, well, actually, we think we need to change people's minds and therefore this is how we go about doing it. Immigration would be, I think, a really good example, which is that depending on how you ask the question, there are a lot of people that you can get either an anti-immigration sounding answer or a pro-immigration sounding answer from. And in that sense, they're the swing voters, you know, they're on, on this issue, they're the deciding group. And, you know, starting with listening to them to understand what some of their concerns are is the way to then win them over um and you know so one of the things you know you often you know you often hear is people thinking that wrongly that immigration puts a burden on our public services so okay you hear that you can then understand the way to respond is highlighting for example how dependent the nhs is on people who have come to this country relatively recently and how wonderful way and you know and i've done this on the doorstep when you get into that sort of conversation with somebody you've then got a chance of persuading them. But if you started from, oh, you said something a bit iffy about immigration, therefore you're a racist, we don't want your support, you, you end up losing them. I think that's the, the two words you use there, Mark, respect and understand. That's the key thing I think that was missing from our European campaign is that you can respect someone's point of view and you can understand their point of view, but you don't necessarily have to agree with them. Mm. But what we did is we jumped straight into disagreeing with someone rather than showing that A, we respected someone's view for wanting to leave the EU and understanding why they took that view. Because then if we take those two approaches, we can then navigate a way to communicate our message to kind of help them move to our side and i think that was in part the difference between the you know the success of our european election campaign and the failure of our general election campaign is that people who you know people who disagreed with us in the european election campaign could nonetheless respect the fact that we were saying look this is a big issue the country's divided it happens that we've got a different view from you on that you know that that's that's an you know you can imagine that's a not particularly confrontational thing to say what I think was <clears throat> part of what happened in the 2019 election campaign was that it sounded like we were taking that difference and rather than treating that difference as a yeah we're being clear about what we believe 
but also that we were parlaying that into being almost sort of harsh and mm. sort of condescending, you know, even even maybe in part how it how it came over at, at, at times. Um, and in that respect, you know, I, I think the sort of the word revoke is quite a harsh word, mm. for example, you know, and, and I think when it's a choice between revoke or no deal, that maybe would have played out differently. But when it came a choice then between revoke or a deal, you can see how that some of that harsh. And that's why I think if you look at the polling around the revoke policy, the polling continued to be quite good all the way up until polling day. But the point was, it's not just that issue in itself, it's that broader outlook. Um, and I think that's the difference is that although we were ruder with our slogan in the European elections, there was nonetheless a sense of, yeah, that's, that's what this choice is. So we're being clear what our choice is and people can respect that difference whilst come the general election, it just seemed more, possibly also because the amount of noise from outriders many of whom may even have not you know not lib dems but you know pro-european not lib of just that sort of oh if if you're not with us you're you're horrible um which, which interestingly didn't really come through i think in the same way in the european election campaign so and i think almost like we planned this which is mm. as, as everyone knows uh, listening to the lib dem podcast there is no planning goes into it whatsoever <laughs> but it does lead us in to actually something that's just happened and mm. so for all listeners and viewers we are recording this on Monday morning, uh, and what's happened overnight is that it looks like the government is heading for a no deal to announce some sort mm. of no deal deal. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, you know, a no deal outcome in terms of their trade negotiations, and so and from that, we've also had a lot of stuff online regarding what the Lib Dem position should mm. be uh, regarding. This. And to be honest, I'm I'm a little surprised by some of this controversy uh, online because. Both Layla and Ed were absolutely in lockstep about the Lib Dem position right now it is neither helpful or useful to be, we want to rejoin the EU straight away. And I, and I, I mean, you, you always get the odd voice, but actually I didn't see any swell of opinion saying, right, the rejoin now um, kind of uh, campaign. Now, and but that's only come up now where Lib Dems are saying, look, we have to now go on to... To, to rejoin now that is our that should be our stance and how do you deal with that Mark? I mean for me personally I and and for my local party we did a kind of a straw poll and oh, and not a single person came back as saying we want to rejoin now some I say a couple said you know we might want to think about it for the for the next general election being our policy but the vast majority said this isn't for now yeah uh, so what are your take on it yeah. Mark? I think, so I mean, in terms of my own view, I'm very much in favour of Britain being a member of the European Union. We will be worse off. We are already worse off out of it. We will be even worse off when the transition period comes to an end at the end of this year. And I want Britain to you know, be back in the EU as soon as is possible. The question is, what does as soon as possible mean? And I think for reasons similar to what you've said, John, I am deeply sceptical that on if on January the 2nd next year we say right transition period's over we now want Britain to rejoin the EU straight away I'm deeply sceptical that that will work mm. and I think the risk is not only that it doesn't work that it ends up damaging the pro-European cause when actually a a smarter approach of saying okay we're out you know, we still believe in Britain being in the EU. That's our long-term objective. But our short-term objective now is, for example, 
you know, to campaign on closer links to free, to maybe get Britain to rejoin your atom and, you know, other ways of keeping the links close and trying to make them closer. I think that's going to be much more successful. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is that there is, you know, if let's say maybe we end the transition period, no deal and things go really disastrously, it might be public opinion moves much quicker than is implicit in what I've just said, in which case, fine. I mean, let's not forget the next general election is quite a long time away. So we've got a bit of time to see how things pan out and to work out, um, you know, what what sort of level of nuance is sensible to add to. We want Britain to rejoin the EU as soon as practical. Um, I, I think what has probably what what can make people nervous is if they feel that there isn't that clear long-term commitment you know i think if you're if you know that all of us really want britain to be in the eu as soon as it's practical you can have a discussion about what as soon as practical means and you might have some very different answers to that amongst people but you can do that in a much more positive collegiate way than if actually some people are doubting whether you really want to be in the eu at all and are you therefore using the as soon as practical as sort of a a lever to try and you know get away from the long-term objective um and so i think that's important that we continue to be clear and to reassure people that you know our long-term objective is for britain to be um in the in the eu and i think as long as we do that there is then that space to have that sensible discussion about well okay so what's the way we get the most pro-european results out of 2021 you know what's the um and there'll be some differences of opinions on that but we you know and that's that's inevitable but I, but i think it's going to be pretty clear that calling immediately to rejoin the eu from from january the 2nd is is really unlikely to yeah. be that to be that route and the one thing i would just say as well is i think you know and obviously twitter is not the real world and all of that but i was quite amused at the person who responded to me saying something quite similar to what i've just said on twitter who says they're a pro-european i guess they are of no reason to doubt their account didn't particularly look like it was a bot and it wasn't located in moscow or anything like that <laughs> um you know who said who who therefore concluded that well maybe i was really a closet lever is you know there is an onus on on all of us as pro-Europeans to sort of say, okay, you know, we might disagree with each other a bit on tactics, but we shouldn't therefore turn that into some great, well, if you don't exactly agree on what, you know, when it is that we think Britain is going to be able to rejoin the EU, if you've got, a, you know, if you, you pick a different date from me, therefore you are somehow unclean and therefore are, you know, are really a, a Tory and, you know, should be cast out and so on, is that there's there's a danger that in people's enthusiasm, therefore, of actually weakening, you know, weakening the cause if they're not willing to engage constructively with people who pick, you know, some different dates in that sense from, from the ones they would. And Tom, I suppose it's, it's an argument about people who believe themselves to be ideologically pure or like kind of do or dogmatic in sense of it that, you know, for me personally, I think there's a real risk is if you can really damage the pro EU movement, if you seem to ignore what, what the electorate has just been telling us for particularly in 2019 and actually the Lib Dems have got to be strategic about this mm -hmm. and not let the best be the enemy of good. If we can get a better kind of relationship than the current no deal going forward, then that is better than sticking your head in the sand and driving off, and we talked about it just before, driving off voters by not feeling like we, you're listening to them. Yeah. And, it's, and I think that's the, where Lib Dems have got to be, particularly those who are, I mean, you won't find more passionate pro-Europeans 
than probably the three of us mm. right on this thing. But it's how we get the result we need. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a little bit of real politics, the fact that if you go for this now, you're probably going to cause more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, I'm still heartbroken at the, the referendum result. I think it was a mistake to hold the referendum. I still go back to that morning of waking up and seeing Nigel Farage celebrating. It's just one of the worst, my worst mm. days in politics. That it was just awful. Um, but then equally, you know, I knocked on several, <laughs> several doors in the 2019 general election. <laughs> and what threw me is they were Liberal Democrat voters who were, were pro-European themselves, but they were saying to us, you know, but this is you know, not the will of the people or it's not the, you know, so if we're not bringing those people with us who you'd think were, actually they were like geg on to be supporting us, then that is the, the, the wider problem. Um, and I, I saw some of the stuff on Twitter with certain people saying they'd left and, and, and there is a little bit of Twitter warrior about it, if I must say, which probably sums up the problems with the, the Remain campaign generally. Um, and it goes back to our point that we made before. The, there is a certain, there are rules to the playing field that all political parties are on. And if you don't listen to the electorate and you don't court their support and you don't, as, as Mark said, they're the, they're the ultimate rulers on who governs and who doesn't. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you were born or, uh, or what communities you're from. You have one vote and that vote matters as much as the next person. If you don't win that person's vote, then you, you don't get to change the course and the direction of this country. So that's the whole point of this. I don't think anyone can say that the Liberal Democrats are not pro-European. We will have pro-European stuff in our manifesto, I am sure. And, you know, there is both candidates, Ed and Leila, said that, you know, they wanted to be a part of the, the EU. And when the time was right, they would campaign to, to rejoin. But that's the key point is when the time is right. And at the moment, we've got to listen to people and heal some of those wounds that the Brexit referendum caused. I just add quickly, actually, one other point, which is that one of the reasons why campaigning for closer links with the European Union in a, is important is both in itself, it will make the end of the transition period less bad, still bad, but less bad. It also, though, makes rejoining the EU at a future date easier mm. because the the smaller the you know the smaller the gap that then has to be bridged in future negotiations to rejoin, the easier that process will be. And so the, there is something quite important about saying, look, look, you know, we can, you know, we if, if there are particular issues that we can pick off, that is is helping the longer term objective. It's not an alternative to. It's a sort of a short-term salve, but also it's helping achieve the long-term objective. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, if you disagree with the three of us, which you are perfect as Lib Dems, we absolutely you are. It is within your right. There is a conference motion in the virtual conference yeah. about this. You can have your yeah. say. You can have your vote. That is the point of our uh, of mm. our party. If you vehemently disagree with us you have your say um and i suppose and that I, I suspect on that motion i mean we'll see what happens but my guess is that you know there's a very good chance we'll end up with a form of words that basically everyone is happy on because yeah. you know I, I don't think there's anyone who's saying we should stop being a pro-european party there is you know 
that there's that there's a you know a bit of wordsmithing to be done but definitely you can see a form of words which you know which which covers that we're pro-european and we want us to be back in the eu as soon as possible and we'll you know we'll judge that as events come as to what that means in in practice i, I think there's um a lot of opportunity for us to sort of unite around that that position just on that if you if you end up you know, cancelling your direct debit um, for the one to two thousand likes on Twitter, then you don't get a vote in that council uh, in that um, conference motion. So, good work. <laughs> um, I was. I think we'll start to draw this episode mm. to a close. I mean, I mean, there's lots of things to discuss going forward, uh, and hopefully, we can do another joint episode. Mm. I mean, particularly in terms of. Now that the leader's in place, we have monster elections next mm, year. Yeah, and, and what and you know, Mark, as you said, you are kind of the voice of the members. Well, a lot mm. of our members, like myself, have our have huge elections next year. And actually, what we can do as a party, what is the HQ mm. going to do? Because that's the next big test. And yeah, that, definitely, that, it's that's the big one. It's a mammoth set of elections, and. You know, particularly if you think about the Scottish element to those elections, I mean, the future of the country is literally at stake. I mean, I, I think it's probably a staple of every eve of poll, you know, election campaign messaging about, you know, you know, the stakes have never been higher than, you know, you must vote tomorrow <laughs> by 10 p.m. But there is a sense of, you know, these elections have an importance well above and beyond the usual round of elections, partly because of the Scottish dimension and partly because of its two years worth of elections rolled into one. And the, t the point at which it will be happening a few months after you know, the end of the transition period, the first set of elections since, you know, we've, you know, we, we've elected our leader, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago and so on, but it's, it, it, it's a really big, important test and a really big and important opportunity to get more Lib Dems into power. You know, at the moment we've got Kirsty as a minister in Wales, we've got 50 Lib Dem council leaders or co-leaders around the country. You know, if we can increase those sorts of numbers, then, that's a whole group of people who from the day after the election can start exercising more power to make more communities more liberal and more democratic. And that's what it's all about. And it's the first test of the, of the Johnson government as well. This is, this is a really, so it will be seen. I mean, if the, I mean, and it's really important as well, 2017, when I got elected to Lancashire County Council, that was a very, despite the general election that mm. happened a couple of weeks afterwards, that was a pretty high mark for the Tories. You are the silver lining to the year of 2017, <laughs> yeah. aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Mark. I'll take that. Yeah. It's a small silver lining, but a very valuable silver lining. Um, but it is absolutely our chance. And what you should be saying to any members who are feeling a little bit down or disappointed mm. or, or listeners mm. who think th their first test isn't in 2024, mm. it's next year. Exactly. And we have an absolute chance to yeah. change the story. And don't forget, 2019 local elections, which were our best ever, pretty much ended Theresa May. Mm. Now, how nice would it be for Lib Dems to put a check onto exactly. Boris Johnson and this government <laughs> next year? And particularly if you look at just how fractious the Tory backbenchers are, you know, mm. there's a real opportunity, although the Tories nominally have a big majority, there's a real opportunity to massively put the government on the back yeah. foot because they've got very, you know, they've handled the backbench MPs really badly. The relations are, are already really fractious. You add in a bit of smell of political fear to that as well. And the world politically could look very, very different from how it felt the day after the last general election. Mm -hmm. yeah.
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, both Tom and Mark, and thank you very much, listeners. I'll just give a quick shout out. So, Tom, you can find him on Twitter at, at Thomas Morrison. You go for the full Thomas uh, for yeah. that one, just yeah. in case the, <laughs> did your mum set up your Twitter account. Because <laughs> um, everyone is so disapproving of what I say on Twitter, they might as well have that kind of mum <laughs> response yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you can follow the wonderful Mark Pack at, at Mark Pack and the, uh, the Bar Charts Podcast at, at Bar Charts Podcast. You can follow myself at at John Potter LD and the Lib Dem podcast at, at Lib Dem Pod. Thank you so much, both, both of you, for mm. being on. Thank you to all the listeners and viewers. Do again uh, like and follow and subscribe. Do comment on anything you hear. We, despite uh, we we welcome debate. We absolutely do. Absolutely. And if you disagree with us, we like to hear that absolutely. as well because we're listening. You know, Absolutely. Listen, that is our that is our mantra at the moment is that we're listening, almost like Fraser Crane. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with more episodes on the Bar Chart podcast and the Lib Dem podcast very soon. But have a good rest of your day and thank you very much for listening. Cheers, thank you. Thanks.